and I'm not going to get here until the end of the hour, but we'll read it, we'll unpack a few things in application, and then we'll close with it. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world... He has somewhere spoken on the seventh day of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, quote, today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did also from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, this is an incredible, explosive outcome of amazing things that Paul has written to these Hebrew Christians and there is so much to unpack for those of you who know and the teaching that I've done through this letter even though we did it quickly as a reading it's probably still took two or three months to get to this chapter even more maybe so there's a lot there that's why it starts with a therefore there in chapter four and so we know the context of what Paul is teaching where he talks about the, those who God said will not enter our, my rest. We see the word disobedience and we understand that it's not about what they didn't do correctly or that they did wrongly in their actions. It's about the fact that they were not, according even to this text, as, as, as the writer says, they did not enter in by faith. They worked and worked and worked and worked and labored and labored and labored and strived and strived and strived or strove and strove and strove. I don't know which is the correct use of that. But all of these things were true and then they just threw their hands in the air and said, I quit. God, you brought us out here to die. Remember the story in the Exodus? I'd be better to be a slave in Egypt than to have to eat this stupid bread, the manna that came down from heaven. See, in those pictures, as we see in John chapter 6 even, we see Jesus speaking of that where he says, I am the bread that come down from heaven. And we know that the people of, of Israel forever, they complained and yet they followed the rules. But none of that, none of the obedience that any human being can muster can ever give the assurance that's necessary for us to rest in the presence of God and his grace. Because the work of Jesus Christ alone and only ever is sufficient to satisfy God's justice. So when we're teaching these things, like every New Testament letter does, we're not, doing, we're not doing this in mutual exclusivity of the gospel of sovereign and free grace. We're not saying, oh, well, here's another add-on. We're not adding circumcision. We're adding submission to the grace of God through instruction. And for people who say, well, that's not necessary, 
Well, it is necessary. It's not necessary for your justification. It's not necessary for God to say you are my beloved child. It's not necessary for, for us to be ushered in. And even some of these knuckleheads around the world today that, you know, they're, in their older age, they really start pressing, well, you know, if you're 70 and you haven't started really looking this way, then you're probably really not born again. That's a sinful thing to say. It's a, it's a blasphemous thing to say. It's the very thing that Paul talks about and dis, disavows in the writing to the churches of Galatia. And the writing to the church of Rome, and the writing to the church of Ephesus, and the writing to the church of Philippi and Thessalonica. He says, it is sufficient that you, as a believer, are understanding that you are resting in the sovereignty of God by his grace, because of his love, through the finished work, it is finished, of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, all these other things, as we see Jesus say, are added unto you, that you may live a fulfilling, like Peter would tell the Jewish Christians uh, uh, there and, and his two letters, are fulfilling and filling up a life that is joyful, that is fruitful, and that is profitable and prudent for not only yourself, but for your conscience and everyone around you. Everyone around you. And so what I want you to see out of this text in Hebrews 4 today is I want you to, I want you to look at the area that I'm going to emphasize, which starts in verse 14. Because of the finished work of Christ... As a high priest to whom all other things pointed, every act of obedience, every law, every jot, every tittle, everything that was ever required of God's people written down was to point to, to Christ and his sufficiency. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since then, Jesus Christ has come through the heavens as our high priest, let us hold fast. To what? Our confession. What is a confession? It said a statement of the truth. A confession is not a lie. A confession is an outward, an outward glory. This is who I am. I rest. It's not an intellectualism. It's not an academics. It's not an understanding. It's not on theological principles. The gospel is not theological principles. The gospel is Jesus. And the theological principles and the precepts of the scripture and the propositions of scripture show who he is. But God the Spirit causes us to believe them. And then some smart folks can come along and cause us to doubt them. And God the Spirit will bring us back to the center. Jesus Christ. We hold fast to our confession of Jesus, his word. Not our confession. Our confession is worthless. Our confession is powerless. Our faith is powerless. It does nothing. But hold on to that and the one who has done everything. See how simple that is? It actually, for me, as long as I've been studying, as long as I've been alive, and as long as I've been working through these things on my own, it still scratches against my humanity. It scratches against the, the wall of, of sufficiency, the wall of discipline, the wall of, of stoicism which I love to climb. But it's not for me to figure out how I rest. It's for me to rest in the resting of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And that's a divine work. And it only happens when we free fall. When we free fall into the promises of God. 4, verse 15, which is really the focus of today's topic. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because isn't that always the excuse? Yeah, that God, you don't understand. He does understand. He more than understands. He's experienced it firsthand. Not that he needed to, but he has. He can sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Tempted to what? Not believe the promises of the Father. Tempted to think, well, what if this doesn't pan out the way I planned it? <laughs> tempted to even think, and I'm putting words in the mouth of Jesus right now, but just for the sake of, of, of fun. Tempting to maybe even think, have I relinquished my sovereignty? He didn't know that. He didn't think that. But I mean, think about it. In his humanity, we don't know 
what God the Son has done in his humanity. We can't fathom that. We can't understand how he learned and grew and understood and, and, and became set apart through obedience and learned to talk and to walk. And he's the creator of all these things. We can't understand how he created a body for himself. And this isn't the point. And all of these apologists who have all these right answers, they're really wasting breath. This is not the point. This doesn't make me want to worship. It makes me want to work harder to figure it out more and to get into all these other areas that could probably help me peel back the layers and look and find the man behind the curtain that makes it all work. I have. His name is Jesus. I don't need to understand the orchestration and the organism and the organization of everything that he has done. I just need to look at him. Son of God, be lifted up as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, and all who look upon him will live. What kind of gaze did it take, you know? Do we need to understand about the cones of the eyes and the way the thing worked and, and the light and the refraction? Do we need to? I mean, I read Psalm 139, and the, and the psalmist there, David, says, even in the darkness it is light for you. <laughs> and if that doesn't resonate with creation, doesn't resonate in your heart, in your mind, I pray that the Lord will give you the zeal to get into the Word and just eat it. Quit studying the Bible so hard in the context of our culture and just eat it. Just enjoy it for the first time and quit worrying about the recipe. You ever gone to a really nice restaurant and you order something that you eat everywhere else and, you know, it's like your anniversary or whatever and you're, you, you paid way too much for this piece of meat but you slice into it and just the look of it, you forget about what you're eating. You just go, <gasps> and you put it in your mouth and you're like, your eyes are closed. You're probably chewing with your mouth open, stuff running down your beard. Just enjoy it. Just sit there and Quit trying to pick it apart. Oh, I wonder what season that is. I better write this down. And I'm going to just eat it. You know, we need to be in the word of God in that way that we are consumed by it. And then when we have some free time, we can just dissect it. And we'll find that the dissection is not very appealing, even by the name dissection. It should bring some images that are not nice to your brain. I don't think you should do that in the context of Scripture either. He has been tempted in every way. Well, what about this? Yes, that. Whatever you're thinking of, yes. Was he been tempted to do this? Absolutely. Has he been tempted? Because what is temptation except to not rest in the promises of God? Every single. Find one that isn't that, please, because I've tried. I'm going through every possible sin that I could even muster to even know that I do and ask myself, what is this but not not, not resting in the promises of God. Because everything that is sinful for me is just a way of me trying to meet a need, emotionally, physical, financial, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a way of me trying to meet a need for me that God has already promised to me. And Jesus Christ has sinned not in that temptation. Let us then, verse 16, <clears throat> with great confidence... I mean, there's no doubt. I know. Draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When is our time of need? Right now. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right now. Our time of need is right now. Our time of need is in two seconds, in one minute, in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year, in a decade, in a century, and so on and so forth. Our time of need is every breath. Sometimes we don't even know it. Sometimes we feel so confident. We feel, we feel so assured of ourselves and our standing and, and, and everything and our plans and everything that we see. We know and we're so, we're so organized in our confidence, but yet we should not have confidence in that because it just takes a breath. In every moment, especially times where we don't think we are in need, we are in the greatest need. We're in the greatest need of God's sovereignty operating over our lives. But the trouble, the trouble is that we think that Christian living is <clears throat> walking around in interjecting scripture passages into conversations. Would you like plastic or paper? Oh, the Lord says that the world declares the handiwork of his hands. And uh, I don't want to mess it up, so paper. I mean, that's neat. But that's not Christian living. That's when you lead, people go, what was he talking about? 
And if you do that, that's fine. But that's, that's not, the point's not for everybody to do. That's fine. I know some people like that. I know some people are going to say Jesus in the middle of everything. But Christian living is by faith, by the Spirit, applying the Scripture in every conversation, in every situation, in every circumstance. Sometimes without the knowledge of anybody else around us. And you just can't get away from the gospel, right? But you can surely become a geek of the gospel, a nerd of the gospel, a student of the gospel. I'd rather be a worshiper of the one who is the good report. Nothing wrong with these things, but beloved, you know what I'm talking about. They take precedence over being. Our time of need is now. And so I told you I was going to be talking about persecution, talking about suffering, and I've decided just to focus in this premise and this idea that Jesus Christ suffered greatly and that the Scripture teaches us in many ways that we suffer as he suffered. And I will just say this because I don't need a sermon to fix the error of what some people have applied to what they think is persecution. When we are persecuted for quiet, resolve, hope, we are being persecuted for Christ. When we are persecuted because of our loud platforms, we are being persecuted because of our loudness. Name one loud platform that Christ was known for in the New Testament. I didn't think so. Where did he get persecuted? When he quoted the scripture... In Luke's gospel, that's one of my favorite places to see this. When he quoted the scripture in Luke's gospel, and a matter of fact, I might have even have said something about this last week. If I did, I apologize. You're going to hear it again. <clears throat> and he goes into the temple. Oh, there it is. And he says to them, he reads the scroll of Isaiah, talks about the year of Jubilee, talks about the restoration, all these things. And the scripture says that everybody was in awe with what he was saying. They were hung on every word. And they were hearing the words, and they were going, oh, wow, this is for us. And then Jesus says, but it's not for you. The God of the universe said that, He's the word, and he spoke the words, and then they were excited because they were entitled to the words. And then he says, no, you're not entitled to the words. It's not for you. And just like God shut up the wounds of these and didn't pour rain here and destroyed the kingdoms over here, and he could have added all sorts of things, like Nebuchadnezzar. Such is it for you, because you think it's for you. It's not for you. And what do they do? They try to push him off the cliff and kill him. So he walked supernaturally through the crowd just like he walked through the wall to present himself to the disciples in the upper room through the locked door and when it comes to these things we know that Jesus was persecuted not for the platforms that he stood on but for the promises that he made for the humility that he had oh you look at you you're going to save yourself right see that was prophesied Oh, you think you're something else. No, I'm just, I'm nothing. I'm just speaking the Father's words. How dare you claim to be speaking for God? But I mean, even if one of us were called to be prophets, I mean, come on, ladies and gentlemen, would we not, would we not flout that prophet title? We'd probably get a t-shirt made, probably start a Facebook group, probably have a website, sticker on the back of the car, the prof. I mean, you know, I had some professors in seminary that, They'd have done well to take that approach. But yeah, we wouldn't have come in there humbly. I mean, I always, always, you know, growing up and, and, and being younger, I'm still young, but I'm not younger. You know, you think, I just want to be Jeremiah. I just want to be like Jeremiah. I feel like Jeremiah. I'm not Jeremiah. I'm Jonah. I'm Jonah all day long, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I'll be Jonah when I'm 70. I'll be Jonah when I'm 90. I'll be Jonah. I'll be Jonah. Now, by the mercy of God, I've gained some wisdom to see that and go, oh, 
okay, you know, I got the 2% wisdom, so I got the 98% to go. I got the 2% wisdom to know that I need to just arrest that, and I need to breathe a little bit, and I need to focus, I need to pray, and do the things that are good for me so that it would be good for God's people. And then everybody goes, yeah, that's what I thought. I'm just going to lay down. But I want to put up a lounge chair and wait for the fire. Let's just be honest, don't you? And then I feel bad about it. And I feel guilty. And then I'm in a time of need that I see when I was in a time of need before I ever stepped out. The joys of suffering will. The Bible, there's so much. There's so many areas. I mean, you know, I could go in, in, into the writing where Paul says, I pray that I may fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for your sake, for the body. And I've talked about those things. And, and there's always some good theologian that's out there just opining and just, you know, poetically, really, just causing us to rest in the, in the poetry of, of, of suffering and know that, oh, man, we're, this, is, this, is, this is powerful. It's got, some, it's got some teeth. There's a purpose in it. And that's good, and you should know that. But I think you know that already, right? So this morning, I want you to see the joys of suffering well. Not just that you should suffer well. We know that. But the joys of suffering well. The joys of suffering well. Paul tells the church of Philippi, he says, you know, I, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I mean, when you hear people say that, sort of like, what was it, Thomas? And after Jesus was going to go, we see in John's narrative that Thomas they're like, Jesus, you can't go. You can't go there. You can't go to town because they're looking for you. They're trying to kill you. He's like, dude, I'm going. And so Thomas goes, well, I'm just going to die with him. That's what he says because that's all he could fathom. That's not what Paul's talking about in Philippians. I'm just going to die for him. Paul's like, I'm just going to live for him in the midst of chaos, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of hatred in the midst of false accusation, in the midst of error and mistakes and lack of wisdom on my part, Romans 6 and 7. Don't pretend like these disciples weren't men who had it all right, uh, who didn't have problems. They had a, a lot wrong. But the truth they knew was spiritually given without error. Don't even think the application. That's why Paul was brave enough to say in later writings, this is not me telling you the Lord's telling you. This is just me giving you some advice. Don't take this to the bank. See, if most pastors would say, don't take this to the bank, this is how I would handle it, but, you know, you've got to decide. But that's not how Christian culture has given us answers. This is God's way and God's way only. I mean, you know, and I've been a proponent of perpetrating that abuse. Didn't know it. But suffering, Peter even mentions this, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So the sufferings of Christ was when he quietly resolved to trust in the Father and spoke the Father's truth. Not in the theological divisions, not in the distinctions that, caused, that, were, that, were, that were polarizing, but in, the, in, in really this passive way of just expressing himself humbly for the sake of those who had ears to hear to hear. But it enrages those who don't have ears to hear because they're going to impose on you. So if we suffer as Christ suffered, we suffer only for the same reasons he suffered. Beloved, there's not a cultural, political, or social issue that Christians are suffering for right now or because of. It's nonsense. It's not there. And if you want to talk privately about that or in small groups, I'm happy to do it. We'll open the Bible. We'll talk about the thing. But I tell you where Christians are or so-called Christians are suffering because they claim to have the divine love of God through grace, but they hate everybody, and they hate everything. And they're known for what they hate, they're known for what they don't believe, they're known for what they're not going to do, and quite honestly, it's exhausting. And it's not found in Scripture. It's found in culture, it's found in history, but if there's one thing we know about history of humanity, it's always wrong. It's an evidence of what we've always messed up on. Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We identify with Christ when we suffer. That's how we, that's the joy, that's one of the joys of suffering well. We identify with Christ. Now think about it for a second. Um, 
And I'll talk about identifying with others in a, in a second. But we identify with Christ because suffering allows us to enter into a deeper communion with Christ. To sit in a place of going, okay, this is the God who created me, who became like me and suffered for me. I want you to personalize the gospel that way. I want you to personalize Christ's mission in that context. That's why we have the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospel accounts, and they sort of go together with story. But we have the gospel of John, and the gospel of John is different in many ways, but one particular re- way that it's different is that John records a lot of one-on-one conversations that Jesus had with people, with individuals. And there were more people that he talked to individually than we'll ever see. Just like there are more sermons that he did broadly that will, that, that will never be written down. And so that is okay because Jesus spoke to one-on-one people. He went to the pool of Bethesda and healed one man out of thousands and got up and vanished. The Bible says he vanished because there were many invalids there. Because, I mean, you can imagine what happened. is this 38-year-old uh, man who's never walked just stood up and ran away. And there's this Jesus standing there. There's this guy going, oh, no. He, I mean, he would have been like I mean, zombie attack. I mean, it, was, it would have been rough. And his purpose there was not to give them all legs. His purpose there was to submit to the will of the Father and to reveal the Father's gospel so that this man would go back to the Pharisees to show the insufficiency and the blasphemy of religious leaders and their laws, their culture. And it's only by grace Christ has set us free. See, we grow in faith. And suffering tests that faith and refines that faith. I mean, it's easy to believe when there's no reason to believe. There's easier to, it's easy to trust when there's no reason to trust. It's easy to, you know, do things. I mean, you may have a business and it may be doing well. And when things are going well, you don't even hardly be- worry about it. But when things get bad... It even starts to suffer. Your performance starts to suffer because you're scared of something. All right? The same thing is true spiritually. Suffering refines us, leads, leads us to a stronger commitment to being a follower of Christ. It deepens our relationship with Christ. It helps us recognize that suffering can bring us closer to the Lord, embracing it as an opportunity to grow and to be comforted and to share the testimony utilizing personal suffering as a testimony of faith, and more importantly, the testimony of the faithfulness of God who cannot deny himself. And that leads me to my second way, that, or the second joy of suffering, and that suffering helps us identify with, with others in empathy and sympathy. The scripture says that Jesus sympathized, sympathizes us with us in, in our weaknesses because he's gone through every temptation in those weaknesses. 2 Corinthians, he comforts us, this is chapter 1, verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable, what does it say there? But who in every, what does it say? In some ways, no, every way understands us, feels us, knows us, and in a greater way because he has not sinned. He has not sinned. So what does this teach us? That in our building of relationships, these personal experiences of suffering helps us relate to other people. We can give support to others. We can give encouragement. We can love people. We can minister to others in ways that people who have not experienced it can, can minister to them. I mean, I've got formal education and counseling and some psychological things and some other stuff and theological stuff and, 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 you know, and, and, and epistemology and application, all these different things. And there's a lot to say to someone when they come and say, I have X. And you go, okay, X. You go to the database of X. But until you've experienced it, you don't even know what the heck you're talking about. And the best counsel is to go, I do not know how you feel. Here's a couple of ropes to pull and a couple of harnesses to carry. And by golly, I'll walk with you. But until you slide off that mountain, until you fall into that hole, until you find that darkness, until you felt that pain, you cannot truly understand. You can understand someone's pain, but you can't understand the journey in it. You can understand that someone is hurting, but you can't feel what that hurt's like. So our suffering... 
it opens it up for us to actually not, not feel like we know it all. It cultivates compassion. What does that do? What does that mean? It means it educates our heart to feel for others. It nurtures empathy and compassion within the community of, the, of, of Christ. Suffering. But you see, culture has lied to us, hasn't it? Christian culture has said, a good Christian is one that's always happy, always holy, always healthy. But life isn't like that. And beloved, think of the most solid Christian you know that's got it all together and you would say, I would love for my life to be like theirs. If God made you a fly for a day, how horrible, you would be aghast at the reality of that life. If we could focus and peer into the thoughts and the fears and the stresses and the anxieties of other people that we think have it all together, if you could have peered... If we could peer into their hearts, we pro- our head would probably just pop off our neck and roll down the alley. Where happened? He saw the truth of me, and his head flew off. We're all the same. And those of us who posture are typically worse off than those who are constantly, you know, don't really have it together. Why is that important to identify with others and empathize and sympathize? Because (laughs) that's a demonstration of God's love. It says there Christ has sympathy for his people. It produces opportunities to show the love of Christ by comforting them, embodying, living out, being present, the call for us to love one another. How are we going to do that? We've got to build relationships with intention. We don't need to build relationships based on uh, obligation according to the last 25 years of examples. You ever had that laid on you? Well, you must not love me because you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't say this. You weren't here during this time. Well, how about I love you based on the giftedness that God's given me? And you love based on the giftedness God's given you. I talked about that last week. If we all have the same gifts, we're worthless. If we're all a bag of eyeballs or a bag of toenails, I mean, who wants that? Gross! Nobody wants that. I don't, you know, I'm glad I've got two eyes, but I don't want three. I certainly don't want six. I look like an angel. I've seen those drawings. The third joy of suffering well is that suffering gains wisdom and insight on how to serve others. James commands us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so on and so forth. Romans, Paul reiterates that very same thing. The irony behind that in an academic circle is that people try to put Romans and James against each other in theology. (laughs) They're saying the exact same thing. Context is different. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. See, personal growth, refinement of character, all these things are necessary. We've really messed up, you know? Since the big expansion, the big move over the sea, the big pond and the western expansion and all the spiritual nonsense that's grown since colonization that we brought over here, my ancestors, we've created this new religion. We've created all sorts of disciplines that we love because we love history. You know what? I love all history. I just, why? Because I'm, I just got to be, I'm nosy. I like to know things. But I'm not a busybody. I'm not getting your business. But I love information. It's just fascinating. I don't care if it's good information or bad information. I love when we travel. Man, Robin will put a playlist on of the craziest, wildest stories of antiquity. 
the three-toed hobbit or something crazy. I mean, you know, it's usually some murder mystery or some schism or some, something like that. I'm like, well, my goodness, in 1700s, man, they were bad. <laughs> well, they bad in 2023, too. We love that stuff, but if history doesn't show us anything, it shows us what not to do. Not to emulate the nonsense that continues to put people in a place of not growing personally. And I'm going to say that to say this. Is that part of my role and Brother Trey's role as elders and teachers are to instruct the church to do the work of the ministry, which includes the individual instruction to renew our minds, to take care of our bodies, and to do things in a prudent and well-thought-out disciplined manner so that we can grow personally. Husbands, you can't love your wife as Christ loved the church as your own body if you don't love your own body. You can't. And that's just almost a misapplication there. We've got to take some interest in growing personally. Embracing suffering as an avenue for personal growth and spiritual maturity. We've got to grow spiritually, we have to grow physically, we have to grow emotionally. We have to grow in these areas. If not, our relationships are going to destroy themselves. And we won't be serving others. Suffering provides understanding and wisdom on how to minister others effectively. And the wisdom that we gain there... And the insight that we gain there, it teaches us to creatively serve others and meet unique needs. Unique needs. Specialized needs. And some of those specialized needs are experienced by you. Suffering, though painful, serves as a vital aspect of Christian living. It offers means to identify with Christ, to empathize with others, to gain wisdom for the service and the love for others. And this paradigm encourages us to view our hardships not as negative experiences, but as unique experiences to grow, to live, to give. It affirms that even in suffering, there lies a divine purpose and a pathway to a deeper love, to understanding, and to ministry to others. So when we embrace this, when we embrace this according to Scripture, we can transform personal suffering into a rich source of power and blessing for ourselves and for one another. I don't know what benefit that my teaching has been this year to you, but I will tell you that 100% of it has come from my suffering. All of it. Am I finished with my suffering? No. I'm not out of it. But by the mercy of God, I'm learning from it. For your sake. And for mine. When it comes to emotions, when it comes to emotions, we see the idea of Jesus. When you think about he's been tempted in every way, you know the stories, right? You know the stories of, of, of the gospel accounts. I mean, he was born... That's trauma. Birth is trauma. You don't know it, but it's trauma. It's tough. That's rough. He was born in a, for lack of really explaining the ideas of first century livestock preparation, he was born in an animal shed. Not a real sterile environment like the field outside the house or, you know, the dirt floor of the back bedroom. <laughs> I don't think there's any difference, honestly. It was more of an issue of humility that the king of glory was born where animals were kept rather than it being unsanitary. But he was born. He was God in the flesh as an infant, as a toddler, as a child, as a boy, as a teenager. See, that would be a book I'd buy, The Angst of Jesus. He had angst but no sin. I'm like, what? Can you do that? Is that possible? Somebody's going to write that book. I can feel it. Fan fiction. That's most sermons on Sunday mornings, right? Fan fiction. 
So I started to think about Jesus. What are you thinking? What was, he, what was he feeling? What was he feeling when he was baptized? What was he feeling afterward when he went into the temptation 40 days? What was he feeling when he was confronted with the enemy? What was he feeling in his flesh? What was he thinking in his body, in his physical body? When he had the power and the authority to make himself bread and eat, but he did not do so. When he had the power and the authority to speak to rocks, to call water from the atmosphere. He created it, but he did not do so. When he had the power and the authority to hurl himself off of the temple mount, yet he would not die. I mean, you know what kind of popularity he would have gained? I'm a Marvel fan. I was a Marvel fan when it was in ink. And I know all the illustrators, their names, their stories. I know all the different editors of all the different versions of so many of the heroes. Because I went right over to that little sub shop. There was no sub shop. It was a soda stand in a pharmacy. And I bought the new release of several comics every single week. There's always something powerful about this hero that looked like us and live like us, but they could fall from the sky and land on the ground. Ah, it's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. See, Jesus would have been impressive, but the Bible says to Isaiah, God says that he was not impressive to even look at. He was not a handsome fella, wasn't a tall, wasn't Thorish, you know. Didn't have that blue-eyed, blonde hair look that we see in those pictures. Not what much of nothing. But man, had he jumped off the Temple Mount and just landed? Did you see that guy? Do it again. I mean, you know, people would have followed him to the moon. And he could have taken them. But he did it. Because it wasn't about his self-glory and his fame. It wasn't about proving God's sufficiency. It wasn't, and see, I'm making jokes about that. But it wasn't about proving God's promises. You don't, don't have to prove them. And he was taken out to whatever place and, and, and given the opportunity to see the vast horizon of the at, and the atmosphere of, of Jerusalem in that Palestinian place. That's where it was, Palestine. And the enemy said, if you just bow down before me, you just, just bow. You don't even have to commit anything. Just get on your knee. I just want to see the Son of God on his knees before me. I'll give you all. The silliness of the enemy is that all of that was owned by Jesus anyway, including him. <laughs> so his reign over any of it was Jesus to take and give. It's just like when Jesus, but what was he thinking? What was he feeling? What emotions were there? See, this is where I waste so much time. wonder if he, then I'll have a talk about it. Holy cow, I was trying to brush my teeth. I better <laughs> see. What was he feeling when he preached to his own people and they tried to kill him? What was he feeling when he would share the truth? What was he thinking? When he said to Judas Iscariot, go and do what you're going to do. What was he thinking? When he prayed in the garden... We know what he was thinking there. We know what he was feeling there. He came back out and said, I'm in angst. I'm in terror. I'm about to die in my flesh from the, from the stress, from the anxiety. I didn't know what anxiety was in, until really last year. Look, am I having a heart attack? Do I have a tumor? What is happening to me? Huh, I can't breathe. Oh, my God, I don't know what's going on. It's called panic. And you know what is over? You don't know. That's why it's panic. Anxiety. And some of you have shared with me that you've had the same experiences in the last year or so. What was Jesus thinking? Look at the temptation. What do we do there? We escape. We fight. We freeze. We, we get upset. We get withdrawn. We do all sorts of things. He did none of that. He stood still and he accepted the call of the Father for us. And he walked 
out and said, Behold, my accuser comes. So if Jesus expressly shows that he sympathizes with us in our weakness, one of those weaknesses, and I think is the root of all of them, is what we think and what we feel in our minds and bodies. Yet the Christian culture has put all of that under a rug, rolled it up, swept it back in the rug, because if you roll it up, it's on the ground still. So you have to put it in the middle of the rug, then roll the rug up, and then throw the rug off a cliff. Where's the rug? Don't talk about the rug. We don't need a rug. But I put some dust. The dust did not exist. You don't know what you're talking about. That's called spiritual gaslighting. No, we need to talk about these things. We need to learn and get instruction in these things. And we need to be discriminating and discerning with what we hear according to the scripture if it's us inferring things or imposing things or if it's truly there. So do that today. Don't take my word for what I'm saying. I could be crazy on this issue. The Bible says Jesus sympathizes with us in every way and sin not. And the narrative shows us many ways in which Jesus suffered. Then the apostles came along and they suffered in the same way for the same purpose. Trying to live in peace, trying to just proclaim the gospel, trying to get into the communities of people who wanted to hear it and learn more about it and live it out effectively and people wouldn't leave them alone. So there's some four-part application as we close this out today about this emotion, understanding and managing emotions. I mean, Galatians 5.22. I think they're emotions and feelings. Kindness. Yeah, can we apply that? Absolutely. Peace, love, gentleness. I mean, when I'm ready to bust down a wall, I'm not thinking about gentleness. When I'm hating on somebody, I'm not thinking about kindness. I mean, Solomon had some things to say about that in, in, in his writing to Lemuel. Proverbs 17, I think it is. Sometimes I quote things and they're completely in the wrong. I quote something I think is in Proverbs and it's in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't matter. The Bible stands on its own. Paul did the same thing just then. It's written somewhere that this and then somewhere else is written there. It doesn't really matter the address. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, but he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And that's the exact opposite of what we're being taught to be as people. The Bible emphasizes self-control, patience, peace. Christians are called to emulate the character of Christ because we have the mind of Christ. Though he was God, he did not take God something to be made much of, but he became nothing, a slave, obedient unto death, even as a criminal on a cross. There we go. We reflect the love and the compassion of Christ in every circumstance. And that requires patience. Patience is birthed out of emotional intelligence. Understanding what we're feeling and thinking and working to act accordingly rather than letting emotions drive us. I wouldn't let my grandson drive the golf cart the other day. Didn't even know he'd want to. We were riding around and all of a sudden the whole thing just goes left. What? He reached up and went, like, yep. You're not going to have to drive now, so I'm holding him up here, you know, to get back home. You don't let children drive. You don't let your emotions drive either. You don't let your thoughts drive. You drive them. This requires an understanding about how we think and feel. It requires management of what we feel, not merely an intellectual grasp. So we need to engage in personal reflection. We need to think. We need to pray. We need to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and and helping us identify what we feel and control our emotions. We need to strive to model Christ's patience in love and personal interactions. Second, out of the four, we need to understand empathy. This is huge for me. We need to identify with others through compassion. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And I have a bad habit, and we, you know, I had this conversation very recently. Someone tells me something, 
I, I want to say I'm sorry. Sometimes it's just better to say nothing and to listen, you know, empathy, compassion. But we get into practices that aren't necessarily effective. And that's just an example. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's not always about trying to fix the issue or help someone through it. Sometimes it's just being there with them. I'm here. I hear you. Jesus' ministry was marked by empathy and compassion. Emotional intelligence then demands an ability to understand and feel what others are experiencing. Because if we aren't doing that, if we're not, listen to me, if we're not growing to understand and experience what other people are feeling, then we're not really understanding the mind of Christ. He sympathized with us in all things. So we've got to make intentional efforts, efforts, efforts to listen, to empathize with other people's feelings and give support and love. Consider their suffering as joys, like your own suffering, as an opportunity to reflect Christ's empathy. I have a horrible empathy response. It's hyper. And it comes off sometimes as taking things personal, but it's not. It's overwhelming. When I see a report on the news that there's somebody got shot or there's a war or there's a fire, like going on, I just, I go through this little script in my head and their suffering is so real. And I could right now open my mind and make up a scenario about someone in pain and it could destroy me if I wanted it to. It's a curse. Or is it? It's a joy. Suffering is an opportunity. We're not going to escape it, right? How many times have I said that? Third application. Wisdom in relationships. Serving others through emotional insight. The scripture says that wisdom from above is peaceable and gentle. James says that. Paul says, look after not only your own interests, you look after those, but also the interest of others, Philippians 2. So emotional intelligence means employing wisdom in relationships, recognizing the needs of others and the way they feel and think, and responding with Christ-like gentleness and respect. So how do we do that? We cultivate emotional insight. We study the life and the teachings of Jesus. We listen and we pay attention to the lives of others. We understand that just as we do posture this all's well attitude that others are doing the same. And so even when someone doesn't expressly share, we can go ahead and understand that there's probably some suffering there and we can pray to that end. And if there is something that we have gone through that they're going through and we find out we are in a great position to then what? Minister. So we practice selflessness, placing other people's needs as important as our, ours, as our own. Now, that's not able to be done. Let me give this caveat here. That can't be done all the time. And when we have needs, we don't need to go, oh, let me just put mine down and then just deal with everybody else. That's a death sentence. That's dangerous. When we're in a place where we need to focus and we need to comfort and we need ministry, we need to not try to overcome those needs. We need to let those needs serve the cycle, the love cycle of the church and neighbors and relationships. They need to work through the cycle. We need to go through these experiences. At the same time knowing one day I'm going to be able to return this. See what I'm saying? Because sometimes we get so overcome with I've got to not worry about me that we actually can't help anybody because we're destroyed. Finally, we need to grow and we need, we need to mature. Growing in Christ through developing our understanding of how we think and feel. Paul talks to the Ephesians in chapter 4. He says that we are to grow to maturity, to the Measure in the stature of the fullness of Christ. So if this is the case, then the fullness of Christ is understanding and serving and loving according to the needs which includes our thoughts and feelings. Spiritual maturity involves growing in emotional intelligence. And you're going to hear me talk about this a lot in the years to come. 
moving beyond just academic knowledge to really embodying Christ's love, his empathy, and his wisdom. And beloved, I'm learning that, but I have yet and am nowhere close to have learned it. What am I doing? I am committed to personal emotional growth, personal physical growth as a, as a person, as an individual. Prayer, study, outside resources, community, seeking mentorship and accountability and growing in my relationship with the Lord, in my relationship with myself, in my relationship with you. And so when these things are true for us, when we are walking in this way, we are able to come to a place to not quickly, but eventually we don't even know we're there. We look around and we go, wow, you know, I'm a little less shakable than I was a year ago. I'm in a place that I almost feel immovable, but warn you now, you are not immovable. And beloved, believe it or not, we are not irreplaceable. None of us are the answer. Moses died. Joshua died. Rahab died. Ruth died. Look at all these people in the Bible. They're not. There's always someone else. Jesus died. But he rose again. And so as we suffer in this life, we identify with Christ, as Paul would say, then I will also identify with him in his death. What did his death do? Listen to this. The death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, is the catalyst to life. Jesus died that we might live. He even uses this metaphor that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot live and produce. We are dead in the death of Christ, that our sins are no more, that God's wrath is satisfied, that justice reigns, and that righteousness is ours because of Christ. And so when we suffer in this life, when we suffer together, when we work together, we are in a place of identifying with Christ, identifying with others, growing and maturing and learning to serve in such a way that we then begin to become personally more in touch with who we are and who Christ is and whose we are in him that we might share that together as the church. This might be new for you. It may be way over the top for us to think about these things. But beloved, we have to think about these things. Because if we're not, we don't understand when Paul says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. If we don't understand these things, we aren't understanding how to live there. Because if we're not relating to ourselves in this way, or to others in this way, then we haven't understood how God himself has related to us in this way. And so then our faith is always this juggle ball on fire with a lion running after us. I mean, it's always this catastrophic stress. And that is not what it means to live in the church. It should not be the evangelical way to live under bondage and fear and brokenness. but to live in the midst of all those things that are true for the culture in freedom and, more importantly, in joy. And I am determined to show in the weeks to come that joy comes through contentment. And contentment comes through the knowledge of grace. There's no other place to find solid foundation. With all that said, Christ who has passed through the heavens, is our high priest, and he loves you. How do you know? Because his love is his death. The efficacy of that love is his life raised again. And that is the only thing that we have to stand on when it comes to our assurance, to our confidence, and to our joy. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and Lord, over the last hour, I have said many words. May yours reign true and powerful over all my thoughts. Father, I am flawed. 
I am chaotic. And I am not able to see everything or not able to see anything sometimes the way they should be. Father, you know all things at all times. You've known us before there was a world. In all eternity, you have known us as your people. Plant that in our hearts. Plant that in our minds. Help us to see the application because of the gospel of grace. To live it out. And Lord, there are many who are running from you, running from us, running from the world, running and trying to escape. Lord, put us in a place that we may embrace and endure and, Father, ultimately enjoy this life, even in the hard times, because darkness will not overcome the light. And as we saw in your word this morning, Lord, the the darkness for you is light. You are immovable, immortable, always the Most High. And you love us with an everlasting love that we have the confidence to approach the throne, to arrest the worship of the angels in heaven, that you would lend your ear to us and say, what is it, my child?